Hello, everyone, and welcome to the recommendations section of the podcast. This week, I'm going to recommend a TikTok page. Um, I have been very interested in this TikTok page because of the ASMR, um, that's Autonomous Sensory sensory Meridian Response, Um, and oftentimes it's a tingling sensation that begins on the scalp and moves down the back of the neck and the upper spine, and most of the time it's from hearing things. Um, So the TikTok page that I've been watching recently is called Flinnis Day, has almost a million followers, and what this person does is she takes journal pages and she, blank journal pages, and she creates these pages with scrapbooks and stickers and signatures and drawings and all kinds of different things. But what catches your eye is the noises that it makes. So I really enjoyed that. Um, You know, I'm just recommending that to our viewers um, this week. I hope you guys enjoy the rest of the podcast. Well, thanks for that, Shannon. Um, This week's episode is going to be about a guy from history named Musa and what I learned about his story. Yes, this is the main event now. Throughout his lifetime, Musa would accumulate so much wealth, but we aren't exactly sure how much. Every record historians found in hopes of tallying up just how much money Musa had is just a guy who basically said uh, or wrote, I can't even describe it. He can't even describe how much money he had. Musa was born in the year 1280, so pretty long time ago, into a royal family. Musa would become king in the year 1312, at which point people started calling him Mansa Musa, as the word Mansa means sultan, king, or emperor in the Mandinka language. The story of how Musa became Mansa Musa does come with some mystery and some wonder, actually, but we'll get to that later. When Musa inherited the kingdom of Mali in northwest Africa, he had already inherited one of the richest kingdoms on earth. The kingdom of Mali sits on a huge amount of natural resources, namely salt and gold, but of which both of which were and still are very valuable. For whatever reason, gold has always been valuable, and you and I can easily wrap our heads around why gold would be pretty useful and worth a lot of money. But salt might be a little bit more difficult for us people of the modern era to understand. But until relatively modern times, salt was prized mainly for its ability to preserve foodstuffs as well as seasoned food. So while gold looks nice, salt can make your food taste good and it can preserve your food so you and your family don't starve. There have been times throughout history where salt was just just as, if not more, valuable than gold. So He's basically Mansa Musa sitting on top of natural resources. Both are hugely, hugely valuable. Even though Musa inherited an already prosperous kingdom when he came to the throne, he didn't just sit back and enjoy the labors of his predecessors. No, he got to work building upon the wealth he already had and turned it into something even greater. Under his rule, the kingdom of Mali grew significantly. He annexed 24 cities, including Timbuktu. And yeah, Timbuktu, we've heard of that one. The kingdom stretched about 2,000 miles from the Atlantic Ocean all the way to modern-day Niger, taking in parts of what are now Senegal, Mauritania, Mali, Burkina, Faso, Niger, the Gambia, uh, Guinea-Bissau, Guinea, and the Ivory Coast. I'm terrible pronouncing pronouncing a lot of those. Historians estimate that during Mansa Musa's reign, the Kingdom of Mali had about half of the Old World's gold. Um, when you are the king, whatever the kingdom has is yours, because you're the king of it. So, Mansa Musa had about half of all gold in the Eastern Hemisphere. Keep in mind that they didn't really know that there was a Western Hemisphere during the 1300s, so... 
To them, he had half the gold in existence. Even though having half of all known gold and a lot of salt is one heck of a first step to becoming unconceivably wealthy, that wasn't the only factor that contributed to Mansa Musa's wealth. He also had major trading ports and cities within his territory, such as the legendary Timbuktu. So not, not only did he have the largest supply, he had one of the best distribution networks as well. If you've seen Breaking Bad or perhaps Miami Vice, then you know it isn't just about the supply, it's about the crew you got running it. <laughs> I know that's terribly tacky, but you get what I'm saying. He didn't just have the goods, he had the best one of the best ways to you know distribute those goods and trade so it kind of makes sense he's one of the wealthiest people ever now mali was filthy rich but it wasn't particularly famous other than its citizens and neighboring lands mali wasn't spoken about by commoners throughout europe or even the mediterranean that is until mansa musa's legendary road trip no this wasn't a road trip with gas station stops for slim jims and soft drinks no it was much more epic than that you see, Mansa Musa was a devout Muslim, and like all Muslims, he wanted to take a trek to Mecca before he died. This is known as a Hajj, H-A-J-J, and, and it's, the it's known as a Hajj in the religion of Islam. What made this trek so legendary? Well, when you are the wealthiest known person to have ever existed, you're not going to travel 3,000 plus miles, almost 4,000 miles, through the Sahara Desert in modesty. So reports say Mansa Musa's army of servants, soldiers, followers, etc. prepared for months before the king's hajj. And when they set out, they were about 60,000 strong. He took his entire royal court and officials, soldiers, griots, which are like entertainers sort of, merchants, camel drivers, and 12,000 slaves, as well as a long train of goats and sheep for food. This wasn't a travel party. It was a community moving through the desert. And keep in mind that every single person on this journey was covered head to toe with the finest silk and golden jewelry in existence. Mansa Musa even had the slaves blinged out in the finest garb. Along with their livestock brought along for food, they also brought camels as pack animals. Each of the 100 camels was carrying about 100 pounds of pure gold. I can only imagine a rural desert-dwelling people waking up one day to see 60,000 people dressed flyer than Puff Diddy uh, walking through the desert, eating the finest of foods and acting like the heat wasn't all that bad because they had slaves fanning them as they went. What a trip. Now, then... That's when they came across Cairo. They went through the desert. They came across Cairo in Egypt. Now, the BBC describes it here. So lavishly did he hand out gold in Cairo that his three-month stay caused the price of gold to plummet in the region for 10 years, wrecking the economy. Mansa Musa gave so much gold to peasants and overpaid for just about everything. Imagine going to a gas station today for a Coke and paying the cashier with a brick of gold. Can you guess what kind of societal unrest? Can you guess what the cashier would do? Could you guess what the other people in the gas station would do? They wouldn't just be like, oh, yeah, he paid for his food and go about their day. That would be <laughs> all chaos would break out. You know, uh, it would just the societal unrest of that would have on the, the community that Mansa Musa visited. It would be it would be nuts. U.S. based technology company SmartAsset.com estimates that due to the depreciation of gold, Mansa Musa's pilgrimage led to about 1.5 billion U.S. dollars of economic losses across the Middle East. On his way back home, Mansa Musa passed through Egypt again, and according to some, tried to help the country's economy by removing some of the gold from circulation by borrowing it back at extortionate interest rates. 
from Egyptian lenders. That is a baller move. Give away so much money to the peasants and merchants of a region that you tank the local economy. Then, on our way back through, while you're just moseying on through, those communities, you buy back most of the gold you gave, but at ridiculous interest rates. So you aren't just helping stabilize the economy back to normal. You also pay into the financial institutions of the region. That's <laughs> that's crazy. That brings us to how Musa became king. Now, the world only knows about Mansa Musa's ascension to the throne because of a scholar wrote it down a long, long time ago. According to the Age of Mansa Musa of Mali, Problems in Succession and Chronology by the International Journal of African Historical Studies published for the Boston University African Studies Center, Mansa Musa stayed in Cairo for three months in 1324 while en route to Mecca for the Hajj. While there, he befriended an emir. That's uh, like a local chief named Abu al-Hasan Ali ibn Amir Hajib, who was the governor of the district of Cairo that Musa was staying in. And Ibn Amir Hajib later recounted what he had learned of Mali from his conversations with Musa to the scholar Al-Umari. In one such, such conversation, Ibn Amir Hajib had asked Musa how he had become king, and Musa responded. Now, this is a bit long, but it's Musa's own words. I mean, sort of. It's actually his words through like a scholar twice removed from Musa. But here we go. We belong, this is Musa's words, basically. We belong to a house which hands on the kingship by inheritance. The king who was my predecessor did not believe that it was impossible to discover the furthest limit of the Atlantic Ocean and wished vehemently to do so. So he equipped 200 ships filled with men and the same number equipped with gold, water, and provisions enough to last them for years, and said to the man de deputed uh, to lead them, do not return until you reach the end of it or your provisions and water give out. They departed, and a long time passed before anyone came back. Then one ship returned, and we asked the captain what news they brought. He said, yes, O Sultan, we traveled for a long time until there appeared in the open sea, as it were, a river with powerful current, Mine was the last of those ships. The other ships went on ahead, but when they reached that place, they did not return, and no more was seen of them, and we do not know what became of them. As for me, I went about at once and did not enter that river, but the sultan disbelieved him. Then that sultan got re uh, ready 2,000 ships, 1,000 for himself and the men whom he took with him, and 1,000 for water and provisions. He left me to deputize for him and embarked on the Atlantic Ocean with his men. That was the last we saw of him and all those who were with him, and so I became king in my own right. Al-Umadi's record of this conversation is the only account of this voyage, as it is not mentioned by other medieval Arab historians or West African oral tradition. Nonetheless, the possibility of such a voyage has been taken seriously by several historians. No, uncon no uncontroversial evidence of pre-Columbian contact between Africa and the Americas has ever been found, regardless of whether any of the Malian ships ever reached the Americas. They apparently never returned to Africa, and there were not any long-term economic consequences of the voyage. The river on the sea described by the survivor of the first expedition is presumably, pres presumably the Canary Current. The inclusion of this fact in Musa's account indicates that Musa had some awareness of the oceanographic conditions of the open Atlantic. The Canary Current flows from West Africa to the Americas, which would have facilitated travel from Africa to the Americas, but prevented it in the opposite direction. Now, I got 
All that from the International Journal of African Historical Studies. I know it says there is no hard evidence that Africa went to the Americas before Christopher Columbus, but boy, does that does the tin hat part of my personality get all giddy at the thought of it? You know, like what what could that do in our history? What what possibly could have happened there? What amazing story that would have been if only like one survivor lived to tell the tale, or at least one written account. I. I would do an entire episode on Moose's predecessor if his story only had an ending other than we never found out what happened to them. Anyway, now back to Mansa Musa himself. I just thought that was an interesting story and I had to touch on it. Now, Mansa Musa had put Mali and himself on the map quite literally in a Catalan atlas map from 1375. A drawing of an African king sits on a golden throne atop Timbuktu holding a piece of gold in his hand after his hajj. Mansa Musa had become a household name. That is how Timbuktu became part of the popular saying, from here to Timbuktu, people all basically trying to say something is really far away. People all over the old world now heard of the unconceivably rich king from his mysterious faraway land. And now they saw it as, you know, like from here to there, you know, it's really far away. On his way to Mecca, which uh, he did reach, by the way, Mansa Musa gave away a lot of money, some including his own sing-song historians known as griots thought Mansa Musa was too wasteful with his money. However, not all of his spending was on a whim. He used much of his wealth to build great numbers of mosques, you know, uh, Muslim, Islamic religious temples. Um, legends say he built one every Friday during his reign, the most famous of which is the... <laughs> Jingarebe Mosque. <laughs> when I, whenever I sound out that name or the, the the name of that mosque, my mind wants to put a francophone sound to it, like it is a French word, even though it's not. <laughs> Must be my old French minor from college clawing to get out of my mind. Uh, anyway, Mansa Musa always also commissioned several universities throughout the kingdom. Many of these historic buildings, both the schools and the mosques, are still standing today, some 700 years later. He returned from Mecca with several Islamic scholars, including direct descendants of the Prophet Muhammad and an Andalusian poet, architect by the name of Abu Eshaq Es Saheli, uh, who is widely credited with designing the famous Jingarebe Mosque. <laughs> The king reportedly paid the poet 200 kilograms or, you know, 440 pounds in gold, which in today's money would be like 8.2 million U.S. dollars. In addition, that's so much money. In addition to encouraging the arts and architecture, he also funded literature and built schools, libraries, mosques. Um, Timbuktu soon became a center of education and people traveled from around the world to study at what would become the Sankor University. So, Education, religion, um, very important to Mansa Musa, and he, you know, and he put his money where his mouth was. What happened to Mali, the Mali Empire, you ask? Well, Mansa Musa died at the age of 57 in the year 1337. His sons took over as rulers of the empire, and they screwed it up, which <laughs> happens a lot in history. Dad dies, kid inherits kingdom, kid screws it up. Happens a lot. The smaller states of the empire that were annexed by their father broke off no longer part of the large Mali empire. All the dads work down the drain. Even though Mansa Musa was the wealthiest person we know of, he is only a small footnote in the pages of history. The reason being that European countries went on to conquer and lay waste to much of West Africa. The acts of Europeans are what make up most of our history books because they were the ones that won the right 
the right battles at the right time. And Europeans didn't really venture into Africa that much during Mansa Musa's era. Had they done so, I'm sure there'd be tales about his massive wealth all throughout European history books. But instead, they just put him on a map every once in a while. And now there's a saying, from here to Timbuktu. So not that much about him. Although I did hear from one of my friends from high school. I put, posted on Facebook about that I was going to put this um, podcast out. I said, yeah, mo most people don't know Mansa Musa, but she teaches third grade in Ver... Or, yeah, her third third grade curriculum in Virginia. She said, Mansa Moose is in there. And I was like, that's awesome. My 12 years in public school and here up here in Pennsylvania, I learned squat. I learned nothing about Africa. I have to find it out of myself being bored and looking it up on the internet. So it's kind of cool that they are teaching those things now. So I say he's little known, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he is starting to get, you know, recognized. Now let us compare Mansa Musa to some of the richest men in recent history. Jeff Bezos, currently at, or relatively current uh 190.7 billion dollars bill gates 130.8 billion elon musk 186.8 billion john d rockefeller 418 billion when converted to u.s dollars worth of today and mansa musa closest estimates of his wealth was measured by the amount of economic instability he created in the towns he visited because he gave away so much money that he didn't think was much money, but it was compared to the rest of the world. Now, so he's the richest dude. He really is. I mean, they, some people estimated around 400 billion, but they really have no idea. And the amount of instability he created and all the things he spent on and all the money that was lost. Like, just think about all those excursions they that was before his predecessors went to into the Atlantic and how much money is probably laying at the bottom of the ocean. I think if you had all that money. Anyway, I did this episode because Mansa Musa's story is entertaining. It is exciting to try and comprehend that much wealth. And of course, my mind puts myself in Mansa in Musa's shoes. What would I do with all that money? The possibilities are endless. You know what I mean? But ultimately, I think that is foolish thinking. What would I do with all that money? What really would I do? Um, I'd probably see the futility of it all and come to the same conclusion Musa did. What good is all that money if I don't share it? Why have all this wealth if I can't improve the lives of those around me? Instead of buying another gold-plated camel, maybe I'll improve my community. I know there's no such thing as a gold-plated camel. I just thought it was kind of funny. Some people go through life as if they were told whoever dies with the most stuff wins. They just try. They think that they just need to get more money, get more stuff, accumulate more. And they... It's almost as if they were told whoever dies with the most stuff wins when they were younger. And now they think this is what they have to do. But life isn't a game. Or, you know, if it is, that certainly is not the ultimate goal. Sure, it is important to have enough wealth. We need food, water, shelter, and a decent Wi-Fi connection these days. And I think it is fine to have a bit more than the necessities. Even then some, even more, you know. But look at Musa. The guy had more wealth than the people of his time could even fathom and he gave it away by the camel load you know maybe take something away from that i hope you did take something away from this episode you know money's important it is but only to a certain extent try to focus on your happiness more than how much money you have the two are not you know completely linked together <sighs> so that concludes this episode Thanks for listening, Huda Thunkers. Hope you tune in next week. I uh, think I might have to get a new mic or a different cord because I have, I have the last two episodes I've had to hold this cord in the right position just so it would record everything. Hopefully there's no like 
static on these. I have to get a new cord for my microphone. But thanks for listening. And tune in next week. Um, catch you later. Thank you.